You know as well as I do that Jesus enjoyed teaching in parables. It was his favorite way of telling the truth. And who can forget all of those memorable parables that we have been through before? The prodigal son, the good Samaritan, the builders on the, on the salt and the rock, or the sand and the rock, the sower and the seed, the lost sheep. The numbers go on and on and on. But according to Mark, today's parable is the last story that Jesus will ever tell. It is the last parable. And in many respects, I think it's his greatest. I don't know why it's one of the least familiar. Perhaps it's difficult for us to get our hands around it. But I believe it catches up the whole meaning of the Bible, if you look at it. It's really the gospel in miniature. And once we understand it, I think we will never be able to forget it, or more importantly, forget the meaning of this story. Mark, of course, calls it a parable, but it is not like any of the other parables that we have read or studied before. Typically, parables have one main point, and once you get that main point, you understand the truth that Jesus is trying to communicate to the people. But this story from Mark's gospel has many points. It's more of an allegory than a parable. Everything in the story has meaning, and it usually represents something else. Clearly, in the story, the owner of the vineyard is God. The vineyard itself is the world, it's us, but as Jesus was applying it, he was directing his comments strictly to the chosen people, to the nation of Israel. And the tenants who worked on that vineyard were the priests, the elders. All the symbolic images had already been used in the Old Old Testament, and the people were very familiar with them. There was really nothing immediately new or different about this story. The tenants in Jesus' story were sharecroppers. They were to cultivate the ground, they were to produce a crop, and then the owner got a percentage of the fruits that came forth. This had been done all over during the first century, and absentee landowners, landowners that lived in another country, was commonplace, and they would send somebody to collect. And in this story, the time had come when we are led to believe it was probably about five years after the ground had first been tilled that the owner sends these messengers to collect his due. But rather than fulfill the terms of the original promise, to fulfill the terms of the agreement, the tenants beat and in some cases kill the messengers and send them home empty-handed. And of course, if you look at it, the messengers here are the prophets the prophets that God has sent us to us again and again, sent to remind people of what is due God. Just think of all the messengers that God has sent us. Abraham, Moses, Elijah, Jeremiah, Hosea, all of the prophets, great prophets, and all have been rejected and some have even been killed. And then what does God finally do? He sends his son, thinking surely they will respect my son. They had all been sent to remind the people of the covenant that they shared with God. Prophet after prophet had been sent by God to remind the people that they were supposed to have God as their God. They were to live in his security, in his love. They were to trust him to provide everything, their needs, They were seeking to do his will. That's what all of these messengers had been sent to the people, to remind them of this covenant. That was the promise that faced the chosen people, and it's the same exact promise that we are faced with today. 
And yet now here in this parable, they're getting ready to reject the son, just as they had rejected all the prophets that came before. You know, when I was growing up, we, uh, we often said, we want you to learn a piece of scripture. We want you to memorize one. So invariably, what would we do? What's the scripture that almost everybody would memorize? John 3.16, maybe shorter than that. How about Jesus wept? Jesus wept. Do you remember that passage in the Gospel of Luke? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to you, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you would not. How tragically sad. All Jesus ever wanted to do was to love the people. All he wanted to do was to bring them back into covenant with the Father. All he wanted to do was give them life at the very best. That's all he wanted. And they would end up, along with us, killing him. Harry Emerson Fosdick is a wonderful Baptist preacher of the early 20th century. And he was fond of saying that the world persecutes two different types of people. Two. And both of them appear on Calvary's hill. The world persecutes those who live beneath accepted standards. And those, of course, are the thieves. It also persecutes those who live high above worldly standards. And that, of course, is Jesus. Let's look at a couple points today, just very, very quickly out of this parable. Understanding how it applied not only to the chosen people, but more importantly to us today. First of all, as you read this story, it is certainly a dramatic depiction of divine love, of, of sacrificial love. Somehow God has to find a way to get through to us. Some ways he has to, he has to let us know how much he really loves us. And to what extent he really loves us. Century after century, he has sent people and we have been called. He has tugged at our hearts. He has pleaded with us. He has tried to show us the way. He has sent prophet after prophet. And I'm not just talking about the prophets in the Old Testament. Messenger after messenger about how much he truly loves us. We are fond of quoting John 3.16, for he so loved the world. But sometimes we forget about just how much that sacrificial love really cost. And Jesus was God's last best effort to communicate with us the point of the entire message. How much more can possibly be done than to send your own priceless son? And I believe that when you look at the cross, you see the clearest picture of God's heart. He loves the world so much that he would give up his son sacrificially. You know, when I went to Emmaus, I went to a Catholic retreat center called Holy Family. It was a rather small room, but they had a beautiful antique wooden cross suspended up front, about 10 feet high and maybe four or five feet wide. It was beautiful. And while I didn't pay much attention to the crucifix, because as Protestants, we are messengers of the empty cross. I couldn't help but notice this crucifix and the, be the beautiful way it had been put together. And one night I noticed when the light was just right, the light had struck it. It wasn't so much the cross itself, 
but it was the shadow on the back wall. And the shadow on the back wall showed Jesus with his arms spread and his head bowed. That wasn't the crucifix. That's not what was out of the crucifix. But somehow, whether intentionally or otherwise, the shadow showed the completion of it all. Jesus Christ dying on the cross, head bowed. And I don't know how many times I thought, what a beautiful picture of God's heart, of God's sacrificial love for us, that he would give his only begotten son. I don't know of any clearer picture in the world than the cross for us to show us God's heart and his love. But this is not simply a story about love. It is also a story about patience, God's patience. Now, you and I, had we been the landowners, we might have sent a messenger or two there. They might have killed one. They might have sent one back beaten up. But about round number two, we would have dragged him to court. We would have called the police. We would have called the 1st Battalion of the Marine Corps Division. We would have got whatever we want. We would have sent them in there, and we were going to get what was belonging to us. They weren't going to treat us this way. That vineyard is mine. You can't treat me like that. That's exactly what each of us would do. And if we were God and sent our only son, sent our offspring in there, and they had taken our son and rejected our son and ridiculed him and tortured him and killed him, I would have taken my revenge. And so would most of us here, if not all of us. If they had killed a son or daughter, you would have found a way to get back. And if I had the power of God, and I could bring my son back from the grave, and I could bring him back to life, the last thing I would ever do is send him back to those people. And yet, isn't that what Jesus does? The resurrected Jesus Christ comes back to each of us again trying to tell us once again how much I love you. I died for you. I still love you, and I still want you to come home and be in relationship with the Father. That's amazing. And that's patience. That's eternal patience. You know, sometimes I think we get caught up in God's love for us and God's forgiveness. We like to say, oh, for God so loved the world, he loves us more than anything else, and he'll forgive us again and again and again and again, and that's true. But again and again, we find ways to stray away from God. We are not always doing his will. We are certainly not always loving our neighbor like he wants us to. But he never gives up on us. He has eternal patience. He has all more patience than all of us put together because he not only continues to love us, He continues to deal with us. Now, something I want you to hear today is that everybody needs to make a decision about Jesus. Let me repeat that to you. Everyone has a decision to make about Jesus. Everyone. Now, the decision may be no, or I don't care, or I really don't believe in that. That's fine. But you have got to make a decision one way or the other, and nobody can make that decision for you. Thomas Carlyle is a wonderful Scottish historian and essayist. And he's fond of saying, if Jesus came back today into our world, we would never crucify him. We are too refined for that. We would never crucify him. Matter of fact, if Jesus came back into our world today, the first thing we would do is welcome him with open arms. And then we would idolize him as some type of celebrity. Can't you see it? 
And then when we found out that Jesus was not exactly what we wanted, or he wasn't about exactly what we thought we needed, we wouldn't crucify him. We would just simply ignore him. We would just let him pass by. We would just let him fade away. Can you imagine that? Please either accept him or reject him. But please don't ignore him. Please don't ignore Jesus Christ that his death and his life don't matter. That's the cruelest response of all. And I can't help but look at our society, look at our culture, and look at our world and wonder how many people just simply ignore Jesus. Just simply are indifferent to the Christ. And that's the unkindest response of all. I sometimes think that Jesus would choose to be crucified anew rather than to simply be ignored by his children. So the story tells us about God's sacrificial love. It tells us about God's eternal patience with us. And the last thing he tells us about that you need to take home with you is his judgment. God has given us freedom to do whatever we want. And boy, ladies and gentlemen, do we practice that. We have free will and we love using it. We can respond to God's love and patience or we can simply reject it and turn our backs on it. We are free to make whatever choices we want to make. Whatever decision you choose is great. But be forewarned, hear carefully. Whatever you sow, you shall reap. Whatever you sow, you shall reap. We are free to make bad choices, but we are not free to make bad choices that are going to end up good. That doesn't happen. That's not the God that you serve. You are not free to make bad choices that somehow are going to turn out good. Men and women still think that they can act against God and get away with it, but God is very much alive. God is very much in control, and his plan still marches on. You can do whatever you want to. Just remember that somewhere along the line, you'll pay. The greatest tragedy is not the crucifixion of Jesus. The greatest tragedy is what happens to those lives who reject God's claim on their lives. God has made the world to function God's way, not our way, God's way. It is a God-centered creation. And when we reject it, things begin to go wrong. I don't know about you, but I can't watch the internet or read the newspaper or watch the television and see all the things that are happening in this world, and then people have the audacity to say, what's going wrong? Where do we go wrong? Where do we get off the main path? Well, when you pulled away from God, when you ignored him or rejected him, you got off the main path. We all know the answer, but we don't want to go there. Everybody thinks we got an answer for it. And you can look at any tragedy or horrific event in this world that you want to. We all know what the answer is, and the answer can be staring us right in the face. But somehow, we just don't want to go there. And yet, we still have the audacity again and again and again saying, what do you think is wrong? What do you think is wrong? We think we're getting away with something most of the time. We're just like the tenants in the parable. We think we're putting something over on God, that we're cheating him out of his due. We'll do just what we like. We know what's his best. We'll cheat you. And all the while, we're the ones cheating ourselves. 
we're the ones missing out on that abundant life. Kids, you ever tried to get away with something with your parents? You ever tried to sneak something like a cookie out of the cookie jar? I didn't know that was a sin. <clears throat> ever tried to do anything? Get one past your parents? Probably, maybe. How'd that work for you? Did you ever get away with it? Don't answer that question. I don't want you to incriminate yourself. <clears throat> all, all of us do that somewhere along the line. I remember the story about a little boy sitting on the curb one day. He was just crying. Man came by and said, what's wrong, son? He said, well, I played hooky from school. All day long, I've been trying to hide from people that I know so that nobody would tattle on me. So they knew that I was out here playing hooky from school. I've been hiding. I've been running. I haven't done anything that I like or enjoy. I've been trying to get away from anybody that has anything to do with school. And just a few minutes ago, I found out it was Saturday. I never got to do anything. I was playing hooky for myself. That's judgment, folks. That's judgment. You may think you're getting away with something, but you're not. The crucifixion is not an end of itself. The crucifixion was answered by the resurrection. And then Jesus says this to conclude the parable. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The rejected and crucified Jesus becomes the resurrected foundation of not simply the church, but of the entire world. He's the one that holds everything together. He holds our lives together. He's the one who makes it all make sense. He's the one that makes it all work out in the, one, in the end. He's the one that has that sacrificial love, that eternal patience. The rejected stone becomes the cornerstone. The world may reject him. The world may ignore him. But that doesn't change the truth. He is still the foundation of this creation. Not only of the church, but of the world. Let me leave you with a story today. Leave you with a story. During the settling of the Old West, the pioneers would flock to the West Coast in search of a new life or perhaps in search of treasure. California, Oregon, Washington. And up the eastern slopes of the Rockies, there was one trail that a number of the wagon trains went through. But on this particular trail, there was a large rock in the middle of the trail. And I can't tell you how many wagon wheels were broken on that rock or how many men and women tripped over it or how many horses had their broken legs on that rock. And finally, those pioneers got tired of that. So they decided a number of them would, would dig it up, get it out of the middle of the path, and they tossed it aside into a stream that was nearby. And they continued on along their way. And then people who wanted to cross that stream found out that it was really too deep. So they decided, hey, this is a good rock. Let's push this out into the middle of the stream, and we'll use it as a stepping stone to get to the other side. And that was fine until somebody bought a little piece of property on the other side of that stream. And the old man looked out one day, and lo and behold, here's this big rock in the middle of the stream. So he gets out there with his mules. And he hauls that rock out of that stream and places it right down in front of his house as the front doorstep to leading up to his porch. And all's great. It was used for years and years and years. Years passed and the railroads were built and the towns came and people came and go. And then this young man's grandson, the one who had built the cabin, decided he was going to go to the east and become a geologist. And he did. And one day he was back home visiting his father's log cabin there. And he saw that rock and he just took a closer look at it. 
he examined that lump of stone and suddenly discovered that within all that dirt, all that layers of grime, that rock was the largest pure gold nugget ever discovered on the eastern slopes of the Rockies. It had been there for more than three generations. People had never recognized its value. To some, it was a stumbling stone that had to be removed. For others, it was a stepping stone to the other side. And for others, it was just simply a heavy rock that needed to be ignored. But his grandson saw its true worth. He saw it as that lump of pure gold, which it was. Jesus is that precious rock of God. He is the cornerstone of our lives. One day each of us will discover that Jesus is either a stepping stone that provides us access to the Father, or he is simply a rock over which we stumble and lose our way. So close, but so far. The choice, my brothers and sisters, quite simply, is yours. I have only one piece of advice. Choose wisely. Would you bow your heads with me, please?